This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. This is a closer look at Kirk Dando, CEO of Dando Advisors, a leadership and growth expert whom executive clients called the company Whisperer. He started his career at Arthur Anderson, observing the success and obstacles to company growth, which led him to become an advisor to founders and CEOs, helping more than 8,000 executives overcome the inevitable crisis. He says that challenges to growth are common to all and can be predicted and managed. He's put his theories into a best-selling book, Predictive Leadership. He joins me now for a closer look. Kirk, you start your book with a very personal story about an event in your childhood that drives you and influence the work you do now. Could you tell us about this and the other influences your work at Arthur Anderson? Yes, you bet. Um, that event was the divorce of my parents. Um, I can remember where I was sitting when they came in and, and shared that story with me. And that, that started a series of events in my life and, uh, and a lot of uncertainty, unfortunately. And, uh, I remember being caught off guard, like um, not even understanding, you know, I didn't even know that my parents were having problems. And uh, and then all of a sudden they were getting divorced. So that uh, started me on a series of, of, of discoveries around really wanting to understand, like, what else don't I understand what's going on around me? And I really uh, took it upon myself to really start to watch human behavior and watch uh, how people interacted with one another and watch, uh, you know, uh, just kind of these, these hopefully what I was going to recognize were patterns of what, uh, you know, how success left, left footprints, but also how failure left footprints. And so from that, um, I took that into uh, um Having a little bit of, uh, you know, if you can't tell me I can't do something, then uh, that's probably the thing I'm going to go do. So I went to college, and uh, and the only class I did not get an A in was accounting. <laughs> so I decided to make that my major, and uh, not, not a lot of logic going on there. But from that, um, it worked out well. I ended up working at Arthur Anderson. It was a great experience. Got to see uh, and be around a lot of very uh, successful leaders as well as leaders that, that weren't successful and, and really, really struggled. And really, uh, as I said, started to make a study of that. Out of that, I was recruited to be the chief financial officer and ended up being the chief operating officer for a company that we quickly grew to a billion dollars and ended up selling. And uh, through that, that those experiences, I recognized uh, as I stepped out of that, I had a chance to sit on some boards and do some things. But rather than doing that, I decided I wanted to come alongside other leaders like myself that were uh, growing businesses but uh, didn't maybe have a mentor or a peer uh, that could kind of help them see around corners and, and kind of predict the problems before they showed up the results. And I did started doing that about 22 years ago, and I got a helper's high uh, from, from coming along these leaders, and that's what I've been doing for the last 22 years. You write that the first step in helping a company is to determine where they are in the business growth cycle. 
You talk about the three levels of the business cycle. Could you briefly describe them so we know what we're talking about? Yeah, so every business uh, goes through a series of developmental stages as it, as it matures. And each stage begins with steady growth and stability and consistently ends with uh, some level of turmoil. And so the first stage is, is what I call that uh, level one or that startup phase where really we're focused on really getting a product or service developed and finding out that product market fit, uh, perhaps having to raise a little bit of money depending upon how they're funding the, the growth. And it's uh, you know it's a, it's a nervous time, but it's also a very exciting time. Uh, if uh, and we come to a first inflection point where really two things have to be dealt with. We have to start to understand that how we mature our leadership and how we put systems and processes in that can handle the weight of growth. If there's a good market for our product or service, we move into what I call rapid growth or level two company, and that's where things really start to to accelerate and take off. And I talk about sometimes uh, nothing kills faster than success. And that's experienced usually in this level two phase because we're having so much success and things are going so well. Um, it starts to mask some of the issues that maybe need to be addressed that aren't getting addressed. But nonetheless, uh, it's a very exciting time. And we come to this next inflection point, which becomes a crisis. Um, and, and if we don't um, deal with these issues, uh, then we end up usually going back and getting smaller or other things start to happen in the business. Kirk, you write that a big problem is that the people you hire at the beginning may not be able to take you to level two or three. How common is this, and how should a CEO handle this? It's very common. Uh, as I have discussed with literally thousands of CEOs, they say one of the biggest regrets they have is that people that, that have helped them uh, be successful that have scaled out, that they didn't make a decision uh, soon enough. So I'd say it's, you know, happens. It's probably one of the most common issues that holds companies back from growth. And really how they have to deal with that is they have to have, you know, an open and honest relationship with these people and have those candid conversations uh, along the way so they know that how they're performing and uh, and also set the business up to understand that that's, that's a part of success. It's not favorable and it's not enjoyable, but it is a part of success. How many companies make it to level three? And once there, is there no level four? That's a great question, Arthur. There's, you know, um, about 10% of companies make it to a level three if you look at the characteristics. And it's not because you have to be super lucky or have the absolute best product or service. If you look at those at that inflection point between two and three, dealing with those issues is very, very difficult. Um, and so that when you get to level three, there is, there is a level for us, but it's um, but essentially it's just an extension of those characteristics that you find in in level three. And once again, this is an approximation of what happens to a business. This is not meant to be. Once you get to level three, then everything is solved. Sometimes it's harder it's it, it's harder to get and stay there than it is to get there. Now, how much should the future of the general economy factor into the company's plan? And can you predict an economic crisis that may be coming? Well, obviously, you know, uh, no one can absolutely, with absolute certainty, predict those things. But there are patterns out there that we can look at to see and understand. And, and absolutely, that should be part of, of the plans of looking at what's happening in the economy as we look at our cost structures, as we look at our hiring plans, as we, as we look at uh, the strategy to scale, um, looking forward into that economy and, and drawing on, you know, experts that are out there to help give us that guidance is, is definitely one of the critical tools in any successful leader's tool bag. New tech breakthroughs can make a business obsolete 
just about overnight. Can you predict disruptions to your business model? Um, I, once again, I don't think that it's the, with absolute certainty that you can predict those things, but I think you've got to know what's going on in the comp, with the competition. I think too many times we hold on to the things that worked in the past so tightly that we miss uh, the obvious that's in front of us. And oftentimes the people that go out and create these disruptive companies were inside of these companies that wouldn't move. They saw the opportunity, they left and they started their own business. Uh, and they were pounding the drum and they were trying to let everybody hear, but no one would hear because, because they're, you know, the old way or the old guard was, was so, uh, so revered that they missed the opportunity. So sometimes it's just being uh, aware, not just of what's going on, but also listening to the people inside your business and what are they seeing on the landscape because they're close to it. You talk about leadership bottlenecks as a problem for growing companies and organizational charts that look like a, a rake. What's the bottleneck problem? So the bottleneck problem is is where uh, as organizations grow, uh, and no one ever draws an org structure this way, but this is oftentimes how they're performing. It looks like a rake. There's one person with a whole bunch of people reporting into that person. And, and because of that, the path of least resistance when it comes to solving problems, uh, being creative, innovative, designing new strategies, uh, the path of least resistance is back to that one person's office. Um, because in order to manage that many people and lead that many people, uh, it becomes where people are just on a need to know basis. And so oftentimes people miss this great opportunity to really step back and think about org structure and how it drives behavior. And if they don't, it creates this bottleneck. Oftentimes people think the bottleneck is because there's too many leaders and there's not enough upward mobility. That's not so much the issue as it is the org structure design and how it drives um, uh, decision-making inside, inside the organization. I really relate to this next issue when you write about uh, fixing the issue of too many meetings led to one of the biggest turnarounds in American retail. You call it meeting ROI. Tell us about this. So one of the things that I hear almost every time I go inside of an organization and say our communications don't work. Well, most communications happen inside of meetings. And I was working with a very large retailer and we were doing a leadership training. And uh, we got on this conversation about communications. We discussed meetings in a very short order. What we did is we figured out how much time they're spending in meetings each year. It Just for the people in that room, was it was north of about $20 million um, in, in salary uh, that was spent inside of internal meetings. They graded their meetings at about a 5.5 out of 10, which is a failing grade in anybody's measurement. And so they decided to start grading their meetings at the end of their meetings on, on with the criteria of did it start on time, end on time, and good use of time. And over the course of a year, they started having, their goal was like meetings of 9.5, and I think they got them to nines across the organization. It didn't cost them anything, but it, it brought focus and attention to running really great meetings. And this issue around poor communications faded away, and they had a, um, the biggest financial turnaround they'd had in history. It wasn't just because of that, but they, they, they said because they were more focused and got ROI from their meetings. Meetings, um, and by simply grading them, it was a big impact. What a great idea. Now, I advise a number of tech startups. As an advisor or board member, what warning signs should I be looking for as a company grows? The book talks about this, specifically what I call 12 warning signs of success. Um, and, and they're the most common um, uh, warning signs, and, and the irony is, is they are they are a byproduct of earlier success, and so if I, you know one or two of the most common ones 
as a board member. And uh, and I I just had a conversation with Greg Kaplan, who's the founder who was the founder of Redbox, and he said the most common issues he's ever had are around people, and and that seems to be a common theme with any CEO. So there's a there's a warning sign I call right idea, wrong person, where it speaks to, you know, we've got the right idea of what we need to do, do to get accomplished, but we just have the wrong person and we won't, we won't have the conversation or be real about what's going on there. So that's the biggest warning sign I would tell anybody to really be looking out for. What are your views on boards? What can or should the board be doing to plan ahead for possible crisis? And what other advice do you have for choosing a board? Uh, that, that's a great question. I, I think boards are such a, a powerful and important part of the success of any organization. And however, I think it's very critical that, you know, how that board is selected in the individuals. I think oftentimes it's because um, because of the capital that has been raised, people have board seats, um, and sometimes it's just not well thought out. I think a lot of times with first-time and second-time CEOs, uh, they select board parents or board members and almost look at it as like a parental role where the board member is supposed to guide and tell them. And I would always encourage CEOs and boards to to really look and see um, how they become part of the the culture of the of that success, and so I think the boards uh, need to be more thoughtful about uh, really looking at the CEO as the leader of that team of that board that team and drawing them into the strategy of the business, but also they're there to um, represent the investors and the other people that are have an outside interest in the business, and so they have a fiduciary responsible responsibility to make sure that the structure of the board is such that that is occurring as well. You've written about what you call the 12 warning signs of success. One of them is a core values meltdown. What is that? So uh, oftentimes I'll see inside of businesses where they start and they go through and they go through a series of events to really come up with what those values are. And they spend a lot of time and effort, um, you know, sharing and communicating those, maybe getting them printed on T-shirts and hung around the office. And then uh, over a period of time, because of the um, desires, uh, the real desires of the business, whether it be profit or uh, some kind of some kind of success, or there's maybe someone on the team that doesn't really live those values, but they're a top performer, where we start to have look the other way deals, and that really does start to compromise the values of the culture. And then all of a sudden, you see a meltdown. And I've seen literally publicly traded companies taken down because of what I call this um, this meltdown that happens inside the culture. You have ideas on how to build a great hiring process, including asking for presentations from potential hires. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, so oftentimes as we get down to uh, the final candidate, all of them can essentially do the job. But what we really want to figure out is how passionate are they about doing this job. So I encourage the organizations that I work with to do a couple things. One is uh, really put them into a kind of a role play. So if they're in sales, have them come in and present like they're selling to one of your customers. If it's in engineering, maybe have them do a coding problem or whatever, but have them come in front of the right team, the appropriate people, 
and do some form of a presentation. If it's a, if it's a C-level executive, usually it's a 90-day plan. But through that, you can see how much time did it take them to get prepared? Did they talk to the people that were going to be their future teammates? Uh, you know, if you allowed them, did they talk to customers? How, how did they think on their feet? How did they behave? You're going to get some insights that you wouldn't otherwise get in just a normal interview process. And so that's that presentation process. The other one is, is called unanimity hiring. Um, you know, have people cross sections across the organization that have to literally sign something saying, I approve of hiring this person or I approve of, of, of promoting these people. And people may say, well, wait, I'm hiring this person in marketing. Do I really have to, to do this if I'm in IT? But what it does is it creates cross-collaboration, and no one ever argues that it takes the right person to get the job done. So going this extra effort has proven to be very valuable. That's a good idea. Another startup CEO I talked to said he fills his office with entrepreneurs. Is that a good way to hire people? I, I, I think... I, I, it depends upon where you're at in your growth trajectory. I think a good way to hire people is to get very clear about what you need in the role, remove any personalities or people that are currently there, and say one year from now, if this person was wildly successful, what would have been accomplished? What are the musts versus the wants of this position? How do we expect this person to come into our organization and get results? Really go deep and, 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 and think about the behavioral aspects because oftentimes we hire people for their skills and their past experiences, and we let them go for their behaviors. So I think it, rather than saying just entrepreneurs, which suggests the behavior, I think it's better to get clear about your work structure and then, and then really do a great job of defining the roles and then hiring towards that. When people hire don't work out, you say that 80% of the time it's not because of competence, but the personality doesn't fit. Is there any way of predicting that? So there's, uh, there's some ways to be able to, to de-risk it a little bit. One is the presentation that we just talked about. Another one is just getting this unanimity hiring where everyone's signing off because everyone's having to put their fingerprints on that. Another one is just using the behavioral profiles. There's, you know, there's Myers-Briggs, there's this, there's all kinds of them out there that kind of help us give some insight into somebody's, you know, behavioral tendencies. And, and, and then the other one is, I think, just doing really good reference checks. I think oftentimes we think we don't do reference checks because we're just going to hear good things. But I think a lot of times you can find about how someone um, performs uh, under pressure by doing those reference checks. Kirk, you say that there are only three kinds of leaders. Leaders that are for you, against you, or for themselves. Do you have some examples of these styles? Yeah, so this is, uh, thank you. Uh, this is a wonderful question. Um, you know, experience has taught me that leaders that are for you are people who care more about what they can put into you than what they can take out. And uh, not that they're weak and not that they don't uh, hold you accountable, but they truly um, care about your improvement. There's leaders that are against you. Those are pretty rare, They're, you know, but they truly get some satisfaction out of really seeing you struggle and, 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 and hurting you. It's some, some pet, you might remind them of someone that, you know, hurt them when they were little or something. What's more common is leaders that are for themselves. And with all the um, um, information out there about how to be a good leader and manager, people can perform uh, pretty well. But under pressure, you see this person's real agenda come out, and they care more about what they can take out of you than what they can put into you. And you can think organizations that have for you leaders attract more for you leaders. And consistently, I've seen where organizations that, that, that have these kind of leaders, and they're rare, uh, outperform the other kind of leaders that seem to be more for themselves. What do you do with a leader like Elon Musk? 
He's a visionary, the genius and the energy driving him forward, but in no way does he have inspirational leadership qualities. How do you rate Elon Musk, who is a great inventor, is a visionary, but his leadership skills seem to be wanting? So I think leadership skills, um, it, leadership is, is, in my estimation, is the ability to influence uh, somebody and take them where they can't take themselves. And so in a lot of ways, I think Elon does have that ability, those leadership abilities. Do I think he would make a great um, coach, you know, inside of a locker room at halftime, inspiring and motivating people? Perhaps not. But in his own right, in the way that he's done, it's undeniable that he's led, you know, in a lot of ways uh, uh, and had a lot of breakthroughs. But as far as when it comes to maybe leading people in an inspirational way, that may not be his gifting, but no doubt uh, Elon has a lot of gifts that have allowed him to lead well. Whether he's a for you, against you, or for himself, I don't know him well enough to, to make that call. Bob Pittman, who founded MTV and AOL, said that brands win. Do you think that's true once a brand is established? For example, a brand like Uber was not destroyed by its very public leadership issues. I think that, that brands win to the extent that the leadership is right. I think brands can win for a season of time, but if the leadership does not get right, the brand will not win. And we can look at examples like Enron uh, to prove that out. They won for a long time um, on the brand, but at some point the leadership um, ultimately was the demise of that. And I think that that's true. I think there's nothing that creates health, wealth, and happiness more than a leader. And that's, I don't think the brand out, outstrips that. Do you think that managers and leaders are are born or are made? That's a great question. I think that that um, that both. I think that uh, there's a small percentage of people that are just born with the natural ability to to lead, to inspire, to uh, assess risk well, and to really uh, gather people and drive them in a direction. I think a large part of people that aren't born with that have the ability to become that, but it's one of the toughest transitions in anybody's career, either going from doing the work to leading or going from being an entrepreneur to an executive. And many people are, don't dedicate themselves to that transition. They just want what they want. But I think that the, they're both made and born. Is there a well-known company out there that you would love to get your hands on and change before it implodes? Well, when Uber was going through all their stuff, I did I did uh, re reach out and, and make an attempt to see if, if I could provide some perspective and some help. But since then, they've had a change in leadership, and my hope is that they're able to to, to make that, that change because I do think that they are uh, making a huge impact um, currently. So. Has the explosion of technology and the Internet changed your management and leadership theories over time? No, because I think that I think that the the principles of leadership don't change. I think the application does, which the internet and things like that have changed the application. But I think the the, the principles don't change over time that much if you really step back and look at it. Did you have any mentors who taught you about management and leadership? 
I did. I had one in particular, the CEO of that company that we grew to a, a billion dollars. His name was Bill Moore. And I'll tell us real quick is um, when we when we were selling the company, he said, Kirk, you should go help other people. You've got a unique ability to look into the heart of a company. And he said he wanted to invest in me. And I remember thinking, why would you want to invest in me? There's no return in that, you know, if I'm going to go and essentially help other people. And he said, Kirk, I don't want a return. And that's when I realized, and I was embarrassed, that I was kind of for myself because my first reaction was, if you can't get something out of it, why would you do that? And Bill Moore was somebody that was a for-you leader, somebody that he just wanted to invest in me. He saw something in me I didn't see in myself. And that was my first real eye-opening experience. And he was a mentor that I got to watch and and see how he behaved with people in business and in very tough situations. He has spent the last 20 years helping over 8,000 leaders scale their businesses and themselves. He literally wrote the book on leadership and the issues that stall rapidly scaling companies. Predictive leadership, avoiding the 12 critical mistakes that derail growth-hungry companies. Kirk Dando, thanks for joining us. If you're looking to hear more from Kirk, he's launched a podcast called For You Leaders. By the way, if you have comments about the show or Suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt.